So will you turn to our sermon text today, which is from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 to 16. And before we read that, I'd like to uh, read from just a short passage in the book of Genesis chapter 24. Genesis 24. Genesis chapter 24 is about obtaining a godly bride for Isaac. This was the most important task remaining to Abraham in his remaining days. He had to find a godly bride for his covenant son, Isaac. And the whole chapter is uh, very fascinating. But I want to uh, begin reading at verse 61 and read through 67. Abraham had sent his servant, you remember, to uh, the home of kindred. And um, he found Rebekah. And he proposed on behalf of his master's son that she come along with him and become the mother of God's covenant people through Isaac. Verse 61. Then Rebekah arose with her maids and they mounted the camels and followed the man. So the servant took Rebekah and departed. Now Isaac had come from going to Be'er Lahai Roy, for he was living in the Negev. Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening, and he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, camels were coming. Rebekah lifted up her eyes. And when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel. She said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, He is my master. Then she took her veil and covered herself. The servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent, and he took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. Thus Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. And now we turn to 1 Corinthians 11. The Apostle Paul writes by the Holy Spirit, Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I deliver them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved 
For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angel. However, in the Lord neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman. And all things originate from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for recovery. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would guide us in our understanding of this difficult passage. We ask that your spirit would help us. We thank you for your word which clarifies things for us. I pray that you would guide me as I seek to lay these things out for us. Forgive us of our sins, we pray. Lead us and glorify yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. Biblical modesty in dress and grooming isn't by any means the heart of the gospel message. Let's be clear on that from the very beginning. The gospel arrows of our Lord Jesus Christ aim to penetrate the enemy's heart, not merely his clothing or his hairstyle or any other merely external consideration. The Lord Jesus Christ, by his gospel, pierces the human heart, changes the heart. But then having done that, the gospel does then address all of human thought and life and practice comprehensively. The, the Christian faith addresses the important matters of how you speak, how you carry yourself, how you work, how you rest. It even addresses matters of what you wear and under what conditions, what you eat and what you drink. All these things faithfully considered and practiced potentially contribute to the glory of God. Jesus says in Matthew 12, verse 34, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. In other words, whatever is on the inside of you, in time comes out and makes itself known. Out of the abundance of the heart, whether for good or ill, 
the man or woman behaves. So if the gospel-stricken heart is now aflame with love for the Lord Jesus Christ, then the brightness and the radiance of that inward love is bound to be seen in the believer's face and demeanor, isn't it? It's a convincing part of your Christian testimony. Some think it's the most convincing part of the Christian testimony, how we behave. Christians, by grace, are set apart to be different. Not only to think differently about God, for instance, but actually to live differently. Different from others and different even from the way we ourselves once did. He's made us different. And that's true not only in subjective emotional ways. It's not just that I now have that joy, 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 joy down in my heart. No, that inward gospel love and reverence for the Lord Jesus Christ comes to the surface in much more tangible, outward, observable ways. The Christian's loud, proud, old self is put to death. laid in the grave permanently, observably. The Christian's death to sin becomes, in a sense, a matter of public record. There it is to be seen in your life. Behold, for the Christian, all things are made new. The old flamboyance, the old independence, the old sin, the old silliness, stubbornness, pride, brazenness, laziness, self-centeredness. All those marks of the old man are now for the Christian put to death and laid in the grave. By gospel grace... And the power of the Holy Ghost, we put on Jesus Christ and then progressively throughout life become imitators of him. We become imitators of him. Just as the Apostle Paul did in Syrian Antioch, where he ministered for an entire year, the gospel transformation of life and character and practice at that church in Antioch was so pronounced the change was so pronounced that the believers there first came to be called Christians. They had actually become, in the eyes of their friends and neighbors, little Christs. They'd become little Christs. But across the Mediterranean Sea to the west in Corinth, that gospel transformation of life and character seems to have been less uniform and less dramatic. As sadly it has been and is in many places down through the ages. If the quality of spiritual fruit born is any indication, then it seems the gospel really hasn't taken deep root in the lives of many, even in the church. I grew up in the 1960s and 70s when, at least among young people drinking in popular American culture, nonconformity 
was widely and uncritically accepted as a social virtue. Nonconformity. It doesn't really matter what the social norm was, whether it was good, bad, or indifferent. The prevailing spirit of that age was, why be in step with others? Test the limits. Challenge authority. Make your own kind of music. And get away with whatever you can. That was the spirit of the age. It's rebellion for rebellion's sake, which of course is fundamentally satanic. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ establishes for all humanity an authoritative rule of behavior, a code of human conduct. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, God saves his people, delivers us from sin, entirely apart from the works of the law. But the Holy Spirit's work isn't finished at that point. The Holy Spirit doesn't carry us across the threshold of the kingdom of God and then just drop us there. No, because then his spirit begins to conform us behaviorally to the image and pattern of Christ our Savior. Mere men, mere men who just a day or two ago were lost sinners become gradually but observably the sons of God. We begin to display by inward grace the outward family traits and mere women become gradually but observably daughters of God. Daughters of the King, which is to say we're conformed to the image of Christ. And the ethical standard Christ followed throughout his life and ministry, of course, was the written law of God. So the church now, along with the gift of his Holy Spirit, has also received this biblical law intended for God's glory and our good, our well-being. This is the authoritative apostolic tradition to which Paul makes reference here in verse 2. Now I praise you because you, the church, you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I deliver them to you. Dear ones, bear this in mind. Traditions aren't bad necessarily. Traditions have gotten a bad rap in the evangelical church, largely because of Jesus' controversies with the scribes and Pharisees recorded for us in the Gospels. But the problem with the Pharisaic traditions was that they were actually supplanting God's law. They were edging God's law out. <clears throat> but there are very good traditions that actually articulate and support it. And Paul commends those churches that practice them, that practice those apostolic traditions. One of these worthy church traditions is the one Paul describes and defends here in our passage this morning. 
It concerns head coverings. Many people find the apostolic reasoning behind this custom rather difficult to follow. And we won't unravel everything there is to unravel about it here today. But we'll do what we can to loosen up some of the major knots and tangles in our understanding. If we can lay down a few broad fundamentals today and then keep returning to them in our private studies and reflection, then maybe the details will begin to resolve themselves as well. In a nutshell, the double-edged custom of head coverings put in place for the good order and discipline of the church is this. Verse 4. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. So men don't do it. Not while praying or speaking forth the word of God. Take off the hat when you're doing these things. For the glory of God, your head needs to be uncovered. That's the one side of it. The other is this, verse 5. Every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. Now this doesn't make a lot of sense to us until we carefully consider the theological groundwork Paul's laid down for us in verse 3. Two things are happening here. First, he directs our attention away from the mere cultural and personal preferences, focusing instead on Genesis chapter 2 and God's order of the creation of man and woman. And then secondly, he makes a little play on words, specifically the word head. Let's take this argument from the top. You Corinthians have received the biblical and apostolic tradition delivered to you. You've received the gospel and its implications. Good. Good. Then you certainly understand that Christ is the head of every man. Every man. No exceptions. All authority, in fact, has been given to him in heaven and on earth. Christ is the head of every man. The second proposition is equally clear. And the man is the head of a woman. Now this is worth noting carefully. He doesn't say every man is the head of every woman. But within his own home and sphere of influence, the man is the head of his own woman, his wife. Man and wife have taken vows in the presence of God and other witnesses. We are the two component parts of this marvelous organic covenant relationship. The man is now the head of the woman, his woman. And then completing this circle of authority, Paul adds what he might logically have started with, because it's the missing link in the chain. 
and God is the head of Christ. So God the Father sovereignly appointed Jesus Christ to be his mediatorial king, the new redemptive head of the human family. Christ is in that sense the head of the man as the man is the head of his own wife and the household they build together. The man has a solemn covenant duty in his own home to reflect the glory of Christ, his only head. One of the ways he symbolizes this when he worships is to uncover his own head. And I mean the head that sits atop his shoulders. He uncovers it. This uncovering indicates that he understands his direct, unqualified submission and subordination to the Lord Jesus Christ. There is nothing that comes between the redeemed, worshiping man and his Redeemer. There are no intermediate priestly levels standing between Jesus Christ and this man who, before God, serves as a priest to his own household. The situation's a little bit different with respect to the woman. Her obedience to Christ, her King, certainly is not supplanted, but it is conditioned by an intermediate level of human authority. That's the authority first of her own father and then later of her own husband. Marriage, of course, is many wonderful things. But among them, marriage represents a transfer of responsibility in the home. For years, the care and feeding of this little girl has been the sacred responsibility of her father. And then comes her wedding day. And on that day, she leaves her father and mother and cleaves to her own husband, who's done likewise, of course, leaving his own father and mother. And these two now become one flesh become one new family and in that seamless biblical transition not one moment is to intervene when the woman's left out on a limb out on her own she's always under the covenant care of a man who loves her who cherishes her and prays for her and the bride's veil used in weddings to this very day, the bride's veil represents that covering and the spiritual and social safety that it affords her. There are several other interesting things here. For instance, there's a comparison Paul draws between a woman who wears no head covering in worship and a woman whose head is shaved. The very image of it mentally shocks us, shocks me, it alarms us. It's meant to shock and alarm because whatever our secular culture tries to drum into us, the biblical truth is that women aren't free agents any more than men are. 
We live and prosper only under our respective covenant heads. The point here is that under normal circumstances, a Christian woman lives in a covenant relationship under the headship of another, either her father or her husband. The veil or the head covering symbolizes that covenant care and protection. You remember the young widow, Ruth? She was an excellent woman, renowned for her excellent qualities, even in her own generation. And of course, she's remembered for her excellent qualities, even down to the present day. Do you recall her proposing marriage to her kinsman Boaz that night on the threshing floor in Ruth chapter 3? This woman, Ruth, at this point is terribly, terribly vulnerable. At that moment, as she's ready to propose marriage to Boaz, she is about as spiritually, emotionally, and socially vulnerable as a woman can be. She has no living father, no living husband, and she's a Moabite sojourning far from home in Judah. She is uncovered, and she doesn't like it. It terrifies her. The life that she's living, it terrifies her. Boaz wakes up on the threshing floor after a long, hard day of threshing the grain. She finds, he finds this young woman lying at his feet, and, she, and he asks who she is. And she answered, I am Ruth, your maid. So spread your covering over your maid. For you are my kinsman redeemer. She is not just asking to share his blanket. She's asking him to share his life with her under the covenant protection of marriage. That's what the covenant, or that's what the covering symbolizes. And then in verse 10, Paul throws us another curveball with this mention of the angels. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. All kinds of ideas, uh, interpretive ideas, have uh, been spawned by this verse. But let me just say this. Anyone familiar with the Bible, Old or New Testament, shouldn't be surprised to hear of God's angels attending and guarding God's people at worship. Attending and guarding the biblical sanctity and decorum of our worship. We should always remember that we are not here worshiping God for our own entertainment. We're here today to meet with the dread sovereign of the universe to offer him the worship that he requires of us and that we, for our part, delight to give him. Among other tasks, angels monitor the decorum of our worship. They're about the glory of God. They'll stop an ignorant, wayward man like Balaam in his tracks. 
That's what an angel will do. They'll support and encourage men like Joshua, Manoah, Zechariah, the Apostle Peter, even the Lord Jesus himself. They support decorum in our worship. Now, it's very likely we don't see the angels, but we shouldn't become forgetful of the fact that whenever they're present, they see us. They see us. There's much more here, but bearing in mind today's plan, just to lay down a few foundational principles, I think we'll close with a summary. First of all, in the serious business of worshiping God, not one of us is a free agent. Not one. The church is a distinct covenant community composed of other distinct covenant communities called families. Christ is the head of every man. In the discharge of our priestly duties to our own families, men approach God with head uncovered as a token of our respectful submission to Christ. Women, according to the biblical ideal, live under the covenant care and protection of their own husbands or fathers. That covenant care and protection is symbolized by the spreading of a covering over their heads. Now, admittedly, these are very foreign concepts to the average 21st century American Christian. And many of us may think head covering or no head covering. What's the difference? What's the big deal? Almost a century ago, A.W. Pink was aware of these Western cultural objections, and he said, with respect to this matter of head coverings, there is nothing small or trivial in the things of God. He said that big doors swing on little hinges, which is to say the little things revealed by God in his word matter. The little things help make the big things work as they should. Well, God give us the grace today to think these things through, to examine our own practices in the light of God's word, and to worship God in the loving obedience that each one of us owes to our kinsman, redeemer, and covenant head, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.